Many of the psalms that we have considered so far in this series have been written by an individual, and the individual is writing as an individual. So as we've looked at them, they contain a lot of the first-person singular. So just by way of example, Psalm 86 that we looked at together uh, last week, I, David is crying out as an individual before God, I, I, I is used throughout this psalm. I think there's a sense to which when you think about something like uh, Psalm 86 or psalms that we looked at earlier, uh, for example, Psalm 42 would uh, be an example, another example of this. We could even refer to these psalms as lonely psalms because the writer is uh, writing here as a singular soul that is being poured out before God because the writer finds himself in some kind of a, a place in his life of isolation, cut off from other people, seemingly cut off from God and yet recognizing not ultimately cut off from God. And it could be sickness that has caused this isolation or some sin, circumstances, persecution. Something has caused the psalmist to be isolated. And following those psalms and following those psalmists, the applications that we have made thus far in this series have been individually based. We have considered our souls individually before God. So I think of my soul before God, you think of your soul before the Lord. We bring them before God for consideration, for examination, for, for as we've talked about it, conversation between ourselves, between our soul with God, for contemplation, for confession. But ultimately, so that in this process, there is for us a, re, a reorientation that takes place as we bring our soul before God. There's a renewal, a, a comfort, a solace that is found in this process that ultimately leads not only to peace for our souls, but to worship of God. Now, this whole individual process that we've been talking about using the Psalms, it's good. It is biblical. It is necessary for us to do it, and it is healthy for our souls, but it is, in fact, incomplete. And that is seen, or our psalm today that is before us helps us to see where and how that thought process that we've been doing now for a couple of months is incomplete. Your soul will shrivel if it is not a shared soul. Adam is created, body and soul, before God, and we hear those words, words that we know so well. It is not good for a man to be alone. Now, I know that in context, and then often we apply that to marriage, but I want to think of it beyond marriage right now. I want to think of it as the household of God. This is the permanent construct that we have. This is the permanent relationship that is being established right now. This marriage between the church and the Lamb of God, of which marriage here is a sign of that. 
But it is not good for a man who had a perfect relationship with God to be alone. Now, if the Scriptures didn't say that, we might almost consider it heretical to say something like that. How can you say Adam was a lonely soul? And yet there it is, perfectly related to God, and yet he himself experiencing aloneness and needing companionship. Your soul needs broader expression than just some kind of relationship where it's you and Jesus, where it's you and God. It needs connection. It needs community. It needs mission. It needs those things because that's how God created it. Those things are under God as needs. God is the ultimate need in and of himself. And yet, he has created your soul so that it must be connected to other souls. Your soul was made for sharing. And so our structure today from the psalm that is before us, the blessing shared, the mission shared, and then the worship shared, the blessing that is shared. The great line to take away from the, from the, the hymn that we sing, blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. There is this great sense about the blessings of God. They can belong completely, fully to you personally with 10,000 of us stand, standing around you and sharing in them as well. As this psalm opens up, we see this inward plurality, and I say plurality here in the use of the word us, this inward plurality that is immediately turned outward. So verses 1 and 2, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That is an inward plurality, and then verse 2 pulls it out, that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power amongst all the nations. There is and I think I've used this word before in the series on the Psalms so far, there is a selfishness there. There is a praying that God would bless us, but it is a selfishness that in reception immediately recognizes that what it's going to gain in this apparently selfish prayer is so full, is so rich, is so abundant that myself, my soul, can't handle it. I can't contain it all. I can't keep it all. And so immediately, this seemingly selfish prayer is recognized as an actually extremely generous prayer. Because the prayer is not only that you would bless us, but that that blessing would then overflow to the nations, to all of the nations and all of the earth. I, I read this week, I did not confirm this uh, on Wikipedia, I did not confirm it on uh, Google, but I read this week somewhere that said a Swedish proverb was this. If this isn't the Swedish proverb, don't tell me uh, if you're Swedish. I really liked it. A shared joy is a doubled joy. A shared joy is a doubled joy. So some of you know that, uh, that Nate... Uh, our son flew out and after he 
finished his last exam this week, flew out, and joined uh, Danny in Wyoming. And yesterday, it was dinner time, and we got a call. It was a FaceTime call. And Nate and Danny were FaceTiming us from the top of a mountain in the middle of Yellowstone. And, uh, and Lauren and I are sitting there watching them. And, and the joy was doubled. Now, it was double because the two of them were together. And then when they called us, it immediately went to four. Because as parents, we delighted in their joy and in their joy together and in their joy of being in that place. A shared joy is a double joy. The Son of God enjoyed perfect fellowship with His Father and with the Holy Spirit, perfect love, perfect joy, perfect glory between them, a perfect relationship with the Father and with the Spirit but he enters into this world to share that which belongs to the essence of the Trinitarian relationship. He gives to us that which belonged to them. And so Jesus prays for us that in John 17 that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Well, what is his joy? My joy fulfilled in themselves. His joy is the joy of the relationship that he has with his Father, the joy of the relationship that he has with the Spirit. That's what he wants us to have. A shared joy is a double joy. The psalm that is before us today really, of course, connects to all of Scripture. I could, just, I could just open a page of Scripture and show you how this psalm connects to it. But let me just point out the two most obvious connections. The first connection for the psalm today is to the verse that's on the front of your bulletin, the calling, the commissioning, the blessing of the covenant that is given to Abram. So those verses there where this one man and then his family and all of the family that would proceed from this one man are blessed. And the intention of this blessing of the one is that, in fact, the many would be blessed, that all of the families of the earth would be blessed. So one is blessed with the intention of all being blessed. That's the exact idea of this psalm right here. The other place that is clearly being used in this prayer, again, Scripture praying Scripture, is the Aaronic benediction. So you're familiar, as soon as I read this to you, you know those verses that are at the beginning of it, that are at the end of it, because most of the time they close our service as they will today. The benediction that Aaron pronounced on the people of Israel. And I've reminded us of this before, that the context of that Aaronic benediction is so incredible when you see it used in this way in this psalm, because it is through this benediction that what Aaron was doing when he said, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, what he is said to be doing is he is setting the name of God upon Israel. That's the function of the benediction, to set the name on them. And by, by implication, what that means is you're, you're, you're 
you're recognizing this covenant exists. You're recognizing a shared name with your God. And it is so uniquely Israel's possession. It is theirs. It is, it is given to them. It is one of the things that makes Israel Israel. And so when you take that thing that is so uniquely given to Israel, seemingly so exclusively given to Israel, and that thing becomes a prayer through which all of the nations are going to be blessed, you've made an amazing transformation. You've taken something that God has given to you, in this case God has given to you as a people, as a nation, as His chosen ones, and you've said, now do what you've promised to do. Make this to be a blessing for all of the nations. And you pray it onto the nations. Derek Kidner uh, writes of this psalm, the song begins at home, which is the us aspect of this. The song begins at home and returns there a moment. Verse 6, it comes right back to God shall bless us. The song begins at home and returns there a moment before the end, but its thought always flies to the distant peoples and to what awaits them when the blessing that has reached us reaches all. Starts at home, and it goes flying out beyond that. So many of the psalms that we have considered thus far in this series, and again, if you want to go back to last week, Psalm 86 is another example of exactly what I'm about to say. As they have focused on this lonely soul before God, the lonely soul has been given a gift of grace by which it has been enabled, the psalmist has been enabled to sort of peek around the corner of time, to, to stare through a crack in the door back there. And what the psalmist gets a peek of, believe it or not, that causes the psalmist no small measure of joy is us. He's peeking into the future and seeing a nation not even conceived of at the time of this writing in a land unimaginable to the writer, a group of people gathered together in the name of the king, the God of Israel, singing this song. And he peeks and he gets just a glimpse of us gathered for worship and it causes him to have great joy. However individualistic the psalms may be, and they get very individualistic and very focused on particular people and particular circumstances, what you and I can't forget is that the psalms are not like some discovered diary that was published posthumously. As lonely as the psalmist may have been in the composition of the psalm, his intent was that this would be a song that is sung by the people of God gathered up for worship. As lonely as he may have been, 
we're going to sing this song together. That's the intent of the psalmist sharing his soul with the community. And that's what then the community does. The community shares as it sings, as it reads these psalms, the, the sorrow, the trouble, or even the joy of the psalmist. So some of you have asked me over the course of the last couple of months, what do I do with a psalm when I'm not feeling exactly the way the psalmist is? Like, I'm not David. I don't feel like there are enemies all around me who are out to get me right now, who are looking to kill me. What do I do with that? And, and the same idea could be true in reverse. So in other words, that's a tough psalm. David's in a tough circumstance. Enemies are around him. But I don't have that. The reverse could be true. You could find your soul to be very discouraged, and we could be on a psalm that morning on the joyful soul. What are you supposed to do? In the sharing of the soul, the psalms help us to do exactly this. What you are supposed to do is recognize that one or some of your brothers or your sisters are going through this even if you're not right now. The Psalms then become God's gateway for you to enter into somebody else's soul, to bear somebody else's joy or sorrow, and to responsively rejoice or mourn. You get a Psalm that doesn't seem like it fits, it fits somebody. Enter into that experience. That is the idea of a shared soul. That is the idea of a shared blessing. And for us, every blessing that we have, every one of these blessings that comes in the Psalms is multiplied through God the Father who has then, in His Son, Jesus Christ, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The shared blessing then becomes the shared mission, or the mission shared. The idea of this psalm is that as God blesses Israel, people are watching. People are looking at that, and it becomes a witness to the nations. They see it. They see what God is doing with Israel, and they're inquisitive about it, and they come to Israel to inquire, why do you have laws like this? Why do you have relationships like this? Why do you worship like this? What's this all about? As God is blessing them, and they see His ways, His power amongst them. Uh, Willem van Gemmeren again writes this, through empirical observation, all must come to the basic conclusion that the God of Israel is king. There's an empirical evidence set up in this psalm. And the empirical evidence of the fact that God is God and God is king is Israel. Now, if you know anything about Israelite history, you got to think there were a lot of days when they said, I hope they're not looking right now. That's true for them, right? And it's true for you. I bet there are a lot of times when you go, I hope my neighbor didn't hear that. 
I hope they didn't see that interaction between me and my husband, between me and my wife, between me and my kids. Because that doesn't seem like empirical evidence of the kingship of Israel's God. It is scary. And yet God says, that's all right, I got that. This is the way I'm going to make them know. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Don't confuse this. The idea here isn't that if Israel's driving a Lamborghini, that other people will see Israel driving a Lamborghini and say, hey, that must be a great God. I want to go get a Lamborghini. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The evidence of the blessing that is witnessed by the nations is the love is the care of the people of God for one another, and particularly for one another when they find themselves in need. The witness could be joy, or when they say this to Jesus, or when they say of Jesus, when they see him crying, see how he loved him. Tears become the witness of the love not just smiles, as the witness of the love. They're watching. So Jesus prays, I am praying for them, Father, that they may be one, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is praying for our oneness, because our oneness is indication to the world that God sent Jesus. But lest we misunderstand and think that our shared mission that we have together is a passive one, in other words, it's just what other people see in us, there are two great tasks, and these run all the way through Scripture, but they are articulated in this psalm. They are not the only mission tasks that are given to us, but they are the primary ones. As Israel sings this song, as we join with Israel in singing this song, the great mission is prayer for the nations and proclamation to the nations. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Now, in the first place, that is to say, a house to which the nations come up, in which they join together, people of every tongue and tribe and kindred, coming to this place to worship. But it is also a place in which the nations are prayed for. That's what we do. We gather together week after week, and we pray. Whether through the Lord's Prayer or through some other prayer, we are praying for the nations to experience this blessing that God has given to us. And the other thing that we do is we proclaim. We declare His saving power. We call the nations to praise. We call them to gladness. We call them to sing with joy. Your soul cannot do that work alone. 
You can't demonstrate, you can't call, you can't pray any of them effectively alone. We have to share this mission together. You have to share it with me, I share it with you, and you share it with the person who is sitting right next to you as well. It is a corporate shared mission that has been entrusted to us, and that is the idea that Paul is trying to communicate to the Corinthians regarding the body. You are knit together in a shared mission. And we each have a part to play, no matter how much it may feel to us that there's nothing I can contribute. There is that which we contribute to this according to the gifting of Jesus Christ. This is the communion of the saints. It is something of which we experience the benefits inwardly, I am blessed as we share love with one another. But the communion of the saints then goes outward as well and becomes the witness to the world that is around us, a shared mission. That is the mission that is worth your soul. And your soul hungers for that mission. There are lots of adventures that we can take in life. But this is the one. This is the one that is worth your soul. All of the other ones are sub-ones. This mission, to share with the world the blessings of Jesus Christ, is the only mission that will satisfy your soul. All of the other ones will leave you, at the end of them, feeling empty. The blessing shared, the mission shared, and finally in this psalm that is before us, the worship is shared. There could exist an image in our mind, an idea that the purest form of prayer, the purest form of worship is closeted prayer. This public worship, after all, that we're doing right now, that could be formalized. Our hearts could be anywhere right now. Your hearts could be anywhere right now. You could be thinking about anything, as far as I know. Public worship is susceptible, in particular, to hypocrisy. So, we get the idea from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount that this is a dangerous thing, what we're doing right now. So, don't go and boast before others. Go into your closet and pray. But we dare not let the hyperbole mislead us. The intent of Jesus is not to end all corporate gathering for worship or for prayer. His intent instead is to get our souls right before God and then come together as the people of God, united together in humility to worship. Our souls were made to worship together. Now, that doesn't make it easy. Differences in our ages and our language and our preferences and the music that we like and the customs that we bring into this, in the status that we each have as we come here and the personality types that we have, all of those things seem to make worship together impossible, imperfect, and not even to mention the sin, the sin that exists within our own heart and the sin which we inflict upon one another. And so even though this psalmist seems to yearn for international worship, it can seem to be far from us, an impossibility. We seem 
we seem to be more of a discordant orchestra, each playing our own tune, each tuning our own instrument to our own key, instead of one united together. And that would be the case. If it were not for the fact the Holy Spirit comes before us, in us, and amongst us, and he takes the baton, and he wraps it down, and he says, now, everybody, key up to the tune of the Word, to the tune of the Lamb of God. And he starts us together in praise. And that's what goes up before God. The Spirit interceding for us, the blood of the Lamb of God cleansing this imperfect worship that we are at this very present moment offering to God. What the Spirit of God does as that takes place is allows our souls to start mingling in worship. Luther is quoted as saying this, at home, in my own house, there's no warmth or vigor in me, but in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart, and it breaks its way through. Your private devotions are a good thing. Your family devotions a good thing. It's good for us to gather together in small groups and to study the Word. It's fine that Christian schools delight in having chapels, but they are not ultimate. This, the people of God, gathered in the Church of Christ as the Church of Christ is ultimate. It is that for which God has made us. So let me conclude. The welfare of our souls, of your soul and my soul, the welfare of our souls is interconnected and interdependent. To grow our souls, in fact, need each other. If, if we practice church by keeping each other at arm's length, keeping a safe distance, keeping the relationships nice but not too close, nice but not close enough that someone could actually discover my soul, Discover what brings joy to me, what breaks my heart, what causes anguish in my heart. If we keep them at arm's length, it will be to the detriment of your soul. It will shrivel. Now, all of us at times feel isolated and disconnected. But here's the promise, and the promises from Jesus. The good news of the gospel is this. Jesus has, is, and will make his church one. It will happen. Any effort that we put into this, any delight we take in worship, any delight we take in a shared mission, whether that's cutting the lawn together, whacking down trees, helping on the building committee, serving in the community life committee, watching kids in the nursery, teaching a Sunday school class, providing a meal for somebody. Jesus will use those.
shared worship, shared mission, and blessing that is shared by us, and He will complete it. He will unite us together as one body. And so, for the sake of your soul, bear your soul. Share your soul. Participate joyfully in the life of this church, which is the body of Christ. And God, our God, shall bless us, and He will extend the blessing to the world. Let's pray.